Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. In this episode of Around the Coin, I interview Aaron Kaplan, the co-founder and CEO of Prometheum, a SEC-regulated end-to-end blockchain ecosystem for the issuance, trading, clearing, settlement, and custody of digital asset securities. Basically, Prometheum is trying to make trading digital assets as easy as using your brokerage like Fidelity or TD Ameritrade. It's a really exciting company. The upfront work that they did was all around compliance and regulation, and then they layered on the technology. So Aaron is a securities lawyer by trade, and he started Prometheum in 2017, and the company is set to make some major moves. So this is a really exciting, uh, fascinating, and quite complex interview around the different regulations and considerations when building a platform like this. So I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Today's show is sponsored by Otter Labs. Otter, O-T-T-E-R, is a great place to find developers, engineers in crypto, as well as pretty much any other web or mobile application you're building. Uh, Otter specializes in recruiting developers from South America. So if you're in the United States, this is a great option because developers will be on the same time zone. The rates are around 30 to 55 an hour. So whatever language you're you're coding in or whatever project you want to build, reach out to the guys at HireOtter.com and hope you enjoy the show. All right, we are live on Around the Coin. Uh, Aaron, I'm excited to talk to you, man. Um, before I even give your background, uh, I'll just say you know, briefly, Prometheum and Aaron Kaplan, do you want to give me just a, a take on on where where you're coming from and what you're working on, just to set the stage? Sure. Thank you for the opportunity to be on, Mike. So uh, I guess the easiest way to describe Prometheum is it's a public market, a public capital market infrastructure built on top of a blockchain. Uh, I think what we're seeing more and more in the industry in general is a, a conflation and integration of different distributed ledger technologies, architectures, blockchains, whatever you want to call them, into the capital markets process. And it really allows for a lot of efficiencies and eliminates, you know, the, the, the normal capital markets are broken. It just upgrades it. And by using the benefits of blockchain and having all data on chain, having trades occur on chain, settlement on chain, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you're able to really streamline the securities lifecycle. When you say streamline the securities lifecycle, break that down for me a little bit. What does that mean practically? 
Okay, so <laughs> I usually explain this that like most people are into the sexy side of quote unquote Wall Street. They're into investing, whether it's in primary issuances or trading. And those are two important areas of Wall Street. People make a lot of money there, and that's why it is sexy. But there's a lot more that occurs after a trade is made on the post-trade side. You know, when you go from post-trade to clearance and then settlement and how custody is done. And what you have traditionally is, let's say you have an issuance platform. That issuance platform is separate, and it's in its own silo before there's a communication with some sort of exchange or you know, secondary market. So you have a point of failure there. And then afterwards, that secondary market, that exchange has to communicate or, uh, with the clearing firm and with DTC and all these different components here. And, uh, and then you have transfer agents that have to communicate with this as well. So if in theory, the asset exists on chain from the beginning, and the actual creation and distribution of the assets on chain, and then the trades are on chain, and the reconciliation on the uh, on the post trade side, uh, excuse me, on the post trade sides on chain. Uh, essentially, you're just introducing an immense amount of efficiencies that are uh, currently not in the market because you have these different silos communicating with each other. Particularly on the post trade side, what you see is that uh, obviously we are at T2 right now, and they're talking about increasing it, but there's still a lot of different human beings communicating with each other and systems communicating with each other. If all the data is on chain in the first place, you'll eliminate the overwhelming majority of broken trades that occur right now. Yeah. Yeah. It feels almost to me pretty inevitable that it happens this way, right? Like how can, how can trading not move from the stock market onto on-chain reconciliation? You know, there's just so many, so many more things you could do with it. Uh, I remember listening to Naval talk about this in the early days, maybe like 2017 or so. And he was like, everything that Wall Street does is going to be moved into code. So instead of having traders who are, I, I remember going on the Wall Street, like on the Wall Street floor when I was a kid, maybe maybe like 22 years old, mm-hmm. my uncle took me there. And there's people there who are, at the time they were using tablets, you know, but but they're really, they're really like people that are making trades uh, because of information that they have, and it's all handled in the central stock market. So being close to where the trading um, is happening is an advantage. That was kind of the first, would you call that the first major technological battlefront is who can make trades with the lowest latency, uh, it, like the the fastest, <laughs> like right? Isn't there regulation around the speed at which uh, you can submit trades and and there's a lot of consideration on that and moving away from that resolves a lot of those issues, right? Or how do you, how do you think about that particular part of it? So your reference of the New York stock exchange specialist with their jackets and like their tablets, that's the old school days of things. And I would say that like the first major, it's not a revolution, but major event to occur in this capacity was the move from, uh, physical certificates to you know an electronic market system and back in the day when they look, look at the history of how wall street operated at a certain point when they were using paper there was just too many trades and at one point there were broken trades and just too many such that they had to close the market for a day a week to actually like be able to handle all this stuff <laughs> now <laughs> so like now that's pro- that's before both of our times in some capacity but what you see from there is that uh, and your reference to uh, the speed at which someone could place a trade, I think, is a reference to more of the whole Flash Boys phenomenon, where you had HFTs and you have people trying to 
I don't know if you'd call it jump ahead, but be able to understand order flow and how that's going to affect the market. And I genuinely recommend uh, uh, for anyone who's interested in that to read Flash Boys because it, it talks a lot about that and it presents a lot of the issues that uh, you're sort of seeing rear their head in a different capacity with Robin Hood and Citadel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's my take on Robin Hood was that, and I'd love to hear your your perspective on it. Was that it was just a a bad, really, really bad uh, set of circumstances that kind of collectively happened, and then there was just bad PR on top of it. So Robin Hood could have, uh, you, you know, made made it far less damaging to their brand by saying that, hey, like we're dealing with a secondhand with a partner behind the scenes to make these trades, and they're affecting our capability to facilitate these trades, and so we have to put limits on it. It's not entirely our decision, or it's not our decision at all. Um, as far as my understanding, Robin Hood didn't want to make the li- put the limits on that they did at exactly the wrong time. Um, mm-hmm. Did you take did you take that to be the case that the problem wasn't like the the tech company on top of it in this case Robin Hood, but it was like the underlying infrastructure that they have to make these batch trades? Uh, I don't know if it was the infrastructure. I think that there's. Uh, <laughs> there's levels to this stuff, and there's levels in terms of. You know, everyone has a master. And this is not Robin Hood having to kowtow to hedge funds. It was they got a call from, I believe it's NSC, saying that it was a cash demand per trade and it created a liquidity issue. And then you might have a systemic problem if there's a liquidity issue, which could bring down like parts of the entire market and then lead to some sort of, you know, uh, rapid sell off event, you know, some Minsky moment, right? <laughs> but like, <laughs> but uh, I, I agree with you that I, I, in the sense that, uh, it might not have been handled in the best way from a PR perspective. I think they were put in a really tough spot. They're supposed to be a retail trading platform meant for retail traders to operate. So how do they make money? They make money by their traders making trades, right? And like, it, so it, it's not like they were trying to kill their own business. It was more along the lines that the people more powerful than them told them, uh, you know, I think you had to put up, what was it, $3, 4000000000 billion cash. And that's where you had the whole argument about this liquidity problem, which they say is not a liquidity problem, but very much resembles a liquidity problem. So, uh, again, Robinhood is not necessarily the cause of this great illness. It's more a symptom of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How would you describe the great illness? How would you diagnose it? Uh, this is interesting. So when Reg NMS comes online, right, the national national market securities, and there becomes this national market system for stocks, you have this thing called the NBBO, the national best bid and offer come about, right? And customers have to be getting the NBBO. And what year What year are you talking at that point about where are we, uh, like 2000, turn of, turn of uh, century? I, I have to look that yeah. up exactly. Yeah, no I'm worries, not, no worries. I would imagine it's around 2005, that time. 2005. Mm. So when, when Reg NMS comes out, you have this NBBO. There's the easiest way to describe it. There's some rooms between the national best bid and offer and the best, best price that someone could get altogether for those shares. And uh, that creates opportunities for these you know, uh, HFTs and these other funds to potentially use that information and pay for that order flow. And... Uh, basically utilize that in their best capacity is the best way to put it. I think that when you look at like 
people think that Citadel's the bad guy here. They're not. They wrote a letter when this first came out back in the day, before it was, you know, when the SEC was taking comment, I believe, saying, hey, this is going to lead to a system where uh, it'll be unfair. <laughs> and then afterwards, when the rules implemented, what are they, not, what are they supposed to do? Like, you're your business. I understand, like, that's their world. It's not that you take advantage of it. It's that you implement a business based on the rules. Wait, for a second, Where, what is the rule that, that makes them look like the bad guy? Essentially, you have to be giving your customers on the national market system the, be- the national best bid and offer. So, you know, the, on the sales side, it's, let's say it's, uh, the national bid is thirty six seventy five, and then it's on the, on the buy side, excuse me, on the buy side, thirty six seventy five. on the sale five side, it's thirty six seventy. So that's your spread between the bid and the offer, and that's what you have to give. And it creates an opportunity for there to be different activities where players can sort of, it's not interject themselves, but sit in a place in between that S- that NBBO and the actual best price or best execution that's going on there. So you have this area and that the whole concept there is then you have funds and HFTs being able to quote unquote trade ahead, which is not the right term because that sort of implicates securities violations. But I would say it's use that data to be able to uh, make money. Is the <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And I think that's the where and it's not evil, but this is where the potential problem occurs. Do you think it's a matter of outdated regulation or, or too much of a heavy hand by the government and that the, the market would... Uh, adapt, innovate, equalize on its own if there wasn't this kind of arbitrary or artificial interjection of rules in the market? Or or do you view the government's intervention as a positive thing in this sense? I think it's all part of a natural process. It's just a, you know, a rinse and repeat type thing where the government creates a regulation to deal with the problem. You might, it might deal with that problem, but in theory, it could also create other, it's not problems, other situations and opportunities for people and then uh, you do it again to try to get rid of those opportunities. Yeah. Like they'll come yeah. again. And regulation is not stagnant. It's, it's moving. It's just a question of when something becomes a big enough problem or there's like a cause celeb that people are like, oh, this is horrible. We have to take this. We have to stop this process. Like that's when you see some change, I think. Hmm. It almost seems that the rate at which we accumulate these, these regulations is far greater than, than the rate at which we remove them. And it's like... I, in some ways, it's like you're right that there's a there's a evolution there's a cat and mouse game, right? It's like okay, we're going to make a rule to stop this this thing that's happening from that we don't want to happen, and then there's new opportunities that come up or new challenges in the market, and then there's another rule that's layered on, and now we have a you know our law book is like you know ten thousand pages long, and then it's difficult for new entrants to come in and just completely rethink the whole game. And I wonder, I mean, my personal belief is we should have an expiration date for every law, at least where we have to re-vote it in, in, in terms of allowing uh, old laws to kind of die out. Um, do you guys get around this issue by just being completely on the blockchain and away from the market entirely? Or how, how do you sort of think about the overlap between regulatory considerations and what you guys are building? Uh, everything we've built from the yeah. beginning is implemented and in full compliance with the federal securities laws. Uh, so it, it's not about getting around regulation in any capacity. It's really about integrating regulation and sort of using it as a sword and shield. 
regulation protects you. It's it's also a for us. It's not it's not a weapon in the sword sense, but it's it's what distinguishes us. I mean, our thesis since we started in 2017 was that the federal securities laws provide the best framework and are applicable throughout the life cycle of a digital asset. I mean, what you're seeing, particularly in the United States, and you're seeing it even more internationally, is sort of a a confluence between uh, securities regulation and virtual currency. Uh, I know, particularly on the exchange side, I believe in Hong Kong, you have the SFC, which is the regulator there, the securities regulator that oversees, I believe, virtual currency exchanges now. And you have in places like uh, Japan with the FSA, um, you have the big broker dealers they're actually owning and being the largest participants in my mind in the sort of virtual currency space with SBI and Monex. And they both did a really good job of being able to uh, leverage their understanding and their expertise in the security space and offer their clients additional products and services in the virtual currency space. And I think that's a space that's going to grow immensely. And then in places like Singapore, where you have the, I believe it's the MAS, like they're a unitary regulator. So you have regulation that's it's both on the banking and the security side, instead of it being separate, like it is in the United States, which allows them to have a lot more of a crossover understanding of certain issues because the, the uh, a lot of the innovations and you know upgrades that could occur in the capital market system using blockchain uh, can also be accomplished in the finance in sort of the larger banking space, and that's why the banks are so into it. Um, so. Um, I think that what you'll see is that uh, the, I guess the this whole combination where the securities laws really provide a better, not a better, but a proven, a trial, uh, a tested framework for different virtual currency activities uh, will continue. I mean, we have a, a space in the DeFi universe, and I looked at the stats the other day. It's it's bananas. It went from something like in January 2020, maybe there was a billion dollars in all DeFi contracts. And now it's 90. Um, I, DeFi might have a problem in that its success and its actual innovations uh, might become so big that they catch the eyes of the regulators. Because there's an argument to be made that DeFi contracts are derivative contracts. And derivative contracts could implicate uh, the federal securities laws or the commodities laws. And they're sort of operating in a gray area or in the Wild West right now. Um, but yeah, so there's a. I think that the securities frameworks do provide the best protections for people involved, though. So I think mm. that's a, a positive step going on around the world. Yeah, um, I, I always love talking about regulation because it just quickly gets into like a higher level perspective on what we think, how we think society should be should be run. But taking a step back from that for a second, um, can you give me a little background on how you got into this in the first place? Like prior to 2017, what were you interested in and working on that kind of led you to start this and work on this, work on uh, Prometheum? Sure. So uh, I got into the space in 2013 um, and we always wanted to try to build a framework that was uh, protected investors for uh, the virtual currency space initially. So what we did in uh, beginning in 2013, and then we submitted in 2014, uh, we submitted a no action letter to the SEC, uh, myself at our law firm. I'm a securities attorney by background. So <laughs> I submitted a no action letter to the SEC which basically asked them to allow us to conduct virtual currency transactions through an ATS at a brokerage account. 
So basically, just use the securities laws for virtual currency at the time. Uh, at the time, you were at Coinbase, I believe, it started. You're starting to see like MSB regulation tighten up, and you have the money transmitter laws. Uh, so, but it was a good idea then. So from there, uh, I continued to focus my practice on the application of distributed ledger technology to the securities industry and the related regulatory issues. And from there, uh, we participated, myself and actually our CTO, which is where we met, met at a Harvard and MIT legal token framework conference, which was one of the first coming out of that. You know, they try to come out with a policy paper and stuff like that, which was actually a decent framework at the time. Uh, and uh, when... After that, myself and our CTO as well worked in a, started a uh, consumer digital asset company. So this is before NFTs. This is like, <laughs> and, and this market, the NFT market, it totally makes sense to me why it's so big and why it makes, and like the uses of it. But the issue then is that uh, everything was sort of on top of the, either the Bitcoin or the Ethereum blockchains and the transaction costs attended to that, uh, particularly on the, you know, for it to run the data on the chain, uh, particularly at that time got really expensive in the sense that you couldn't really do it for a digital asset under a certain dollar value, let's say $10, whatever the number is, because the transaction costs get too high. Uh, so it then just continued to focus on the space. We always thought that digital assets were securities. It was just our whole thesis all along. And uh, when the Dow report came out in July 2017, uh, then essentially we realized that we had owned brokerage and clearing firms. We had the legal expertise on the regulatory side and had the understanding of distributed ledger technology and such that you understood the crossovers between the space. You know, how does distributed ledger technology really affect the securities industries? How are financial services able to leverage distributed ledger technology? And what are you really implementing and doing that makes sense there? Uh, and then we started Prometheum because we realized you could do all the securities activities on chain. Uh, at the time, it uh, you never realize how big of a monster project you start. And I think that's, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, I can only speak for myself, but like, I think a lot of found, founders feel like that in some capacity. But yeah. uh, we kept our head down and we kept it moving. And essentially what happened since there is I think that a lot of the stuff going on in the industry has moved more towards where we are and that viewing all these activities as related to or implicating the securities laws and, uh, from there, we started our whole business, which is, you know, an introducing broker dealer, which is a uh, means of, you know, a creation of digital asset and raising capital for digital asset, a secondary trading platform, which is an alternative trading system, but a public one, not a private share market. So everyone can participate. And then the mechanisms for uh, post-trade clearance, settlement, and then finally custody, uh, which obviously we have a partner with on the back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm curious, when you mentioned uh, earlier, you you had the, the brokerages. In, in what capacity do you have brokerage brokerages? Or we didn't was we didn't have the brokerages. We had the we had owned brokerage firms. We had owned brokerage and clearing firms. And if you if you needed to understand the to it's a highly regulated activity to own a brokerage mm. firm. There the actual mm -hmm. processes involved uh, require a lot of compliance work. So it's very hard, I would think, for someone who's a pure engineer to come out and say, okay, we're going to do all this and they can build the, the best product ever. But they, not my, they might not realize that their smart contract implicates a federal securities law. And now, uh, basically, you're in violation of the securities laws. And with a lot of the securities laws, uh, there's a, almost a strict liability concept in the sense that if you do something, it's not a question of your intent. So it doesn't matter what your mindset is. 
You don't have to like be have malice or like you know be negligent. It's just if it happens, you've committed a violation. So um, that the advantages of having experience in the brokerage space were very useful there. Um, I think that the most where we've learned along the lines and where we really, I would say, distinguish ourselves is uh, beyond doing everything on chain. The reconciliation process and the settlement process is really where. Uh, I think a lot of advantages are from the implementation and integration of uh, distributed ledgers into the capital market process. And what you've had historically is you, you just have all these technologies piled on top of each other. You have different systems talking to each other and uh, you have a lot of human beings involved. So it just leads to, uh, it's why we have T plus two. They could probably do it quicker, but it's one of the reasons we have at least the broken trades and if you did everything on chain and were able to do reconciliation and settlement with the uh, smart contract, in theory, you really shouldn't have that many broken trades. I want to say you shouldn't have any, mm. <laughs> but because it's all automated. But like you know, there's always fringe cases. And what you're able to do then, particularly if you also have cash on chain, meaning you're using stable coins, like the settlement should could be instantaneous. It's not. Why do you have to wait? Yeah. And also 24 seven, 365, right? You don't have to wait for weekends and holiday, bank holidays and everything else. That's in, in theory what everyone would love to do, but it really comes down to what the regulators will allow you to do. Because sometimes, particularly with newer markets and newer technologies, uh, they like to move a little slower, which I totally understand. And you don't want to be in a market where, you know, by one o'clock or there's some time frame, you know, weird time at night when the market's really thin and someone cannot come on and, you know, pull, pull some funny business there. Mm, <laughs> I yeah, mean, yeah. I think, I yeah. think the other day, what was it? I, so I read something that on Binance, uh, there was a major trade done in the middle of the night and it knocked down the price on a contract for a dot to like two cents. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 you can't have that stuff happen, really, uh, particularly when you're hyper-regulated and operating in the United States. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. I, uh, I, I run, I ran. I'm not involved in day to day now, but a, a company called Redeem, which was a, uh, which is a, uh, a really Bitcoin to gift card trading platform. Now there's other other assets on there, and we started out with a four hour window a day because we were just so, you know, it was myself and a co-founder mm-hmm. building it, and we had. Well, one part-time engineer. And so we're making trades like they have to, they have to not, you know, you, you don't have room for, uh, for people to come in and, you know, do funny business. So I, I get that mentality. Uh, it mm-hmm. does feel like it's a, it's going to move in that direction as we become more confident in the structure of things and regulators become more confident. Like, I'm even curious now why, like how come I can't send to ACH transfer on the weekends or bank holidays? Is that, you know, somebody literally in the bank signing off on this transfer in many cases, or they just have banking hours. Yeah, it is like, yeah, yeah. I think it's a physical (laughs) process. I think, and like there's certain things that if you send a wire from here to parts of, uh, to parts of Europe, if you catch a timeframe where the U S the U S banks are open and the European banks are open, that it goes same day. But if you miss that like hour and a half window, it takes three days. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. really interesting. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. There's a the company TransferWise you talk to that's uh, doing some pretty interesting things with the traditional banking rails. Um, yeah. but I want to ask, what's the uh, w- when you when you build this, what's your target customer initially, and how do you think about your customer over time? 
So we built everything uh, on an equity-based model. So we're using traditional models that people are familiar with from the traditional securities world. Um, part of how we built the system is to allow existing broker-dealers and clearing firms to integrate directly into our, our, our universe and our ATS, such that they can offer their clients the ability to invest in digital assets through their existing brokerage account. I think that overcomes a lot of the barriers. Um, there's also... <laughs> It, how familiar are you? There's a release that came out, I believe, at the end of last year. We probably, but we focus on it. <laughs> so that uh, discusses the special purpose broker dealer stuff uh, in the, which is like on the, it's the almost the equivalent of the clearing side to the ATS, uh, which would be uh, so. The one of the things there is that, uh, at least in the, our analysis, that traditional traditional brokerage firms can't hold digital assets, so you have to distinguish it. So what it allows for there is creates a situation where they want to be able to offer their clients the digital assets, but they can't do anything in the, you know, in the clearing and the custody side. So it, having the ability to allow existing brokerage firms to tie directly into our system uh, is a really big, I think, advantage for us uh, because we're not trying to disrupt or displace the existing financial system. We're just trying to create a bridge that allows traditional finance to tie into the digital asset security universe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, we had a good conversation with, uh, the head of the, I think crypto crypto innovation department at TD Ameritrade. Uh, I forget the name off, off the top of my head, but it was an interesting conversation where she was talking about some of these limitations and what TD Ameritrade is starting to do, which feels like, right. Somebody you would be working with directly. It'd be a, a brokerage like TD Ameritrade or Fidelity is that the type of yep. companies you say brokerages that you'd be working with? Uh, we would be open to working yeah. with either of them. <laughs> At yeah, the same yeah, yeah. time, uh, <laughs> are you uh, listen? What you're seeing in that space, and I, I, I'm just speaking in general here in the in the larger institutions getting involved. You're starting to see them uh, have projects on the custody side. I believe that's what Fidelity or TD did, uh, and you're also starting to see them. Uh, where does the custody part come in? The custody come part comes in such that it ties into an ATS. Uh, we're creating an ATS. So like in theory, like there could be a relationship there. But what I think is more important is the larger idea of these uh, major institutions getting involved and feeling more comfortable with this. And finally, uh, starting to see that they, what we've always believed that the implementation of blockchains, which isn't my favorite term to use there, but distributed ledger technologies and architectures into the capital markets makes sense. And they didn't, from a larger institution standpoint, you don't have to be involved early. I mean, it's, I think it's harder to really innovate at a large institution because you're focused on your existing revenue streams. You're focused on your P&L. It's a different mindset than when you're trying to create something that, you know, might not have uh, revenues for a couple of years. <laughs> it's, it's, totally. And it's also, uh, so I think that what you'll see there is the larger institutions start to make plays in the space, make bets. I mean, bets is not the right word. We saw PayPal, uh, ha I think they announced some sort of relationship with Curve. Um, and uh, you're starting to see these larger institutions get involved. And I think by Q3, Q4, you'll see uh, some interesting and, you know, bigger relationships in the space. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it feels like a marriage that just has to happen, right? It's, it's sort of inevitable that they, they, they either come together or they, they slam together, which the slamming would be, you know, more or less like there's a, there's a 
war, right? Where one side, I, I could almost picture the temptation of, of folks in the crypto space is to say, um, you know, screw the banking system, let's completely flip the table mm-hmm. and start anew. And then you start to, you know, effectively go head to head with, uh, like the existing banking system's ability to lobby or affect regulation that could really hurt the crypto crypto world. And I think that's a lose lose for everybody because then yeah. if that were to happen, then effectively mm-hmm. the America would be behind. I mean, we'd be kind of, you know, if we have, if we have regulation that negatively impacts the ability for us as technologists to build and people to use the products that we offer, then people are going to do it in other countries. There's going to be, you know, whether it's Singapore or Estonia or any other country with, with smart people and forward looking governments, like they're just going to take it and run with it and be the Silicon Valley of crypto. So yeah, I think the stuff that you're doing is so important, right? Just like coming from the, the attorney and the legal side of things and merging the worlds of that and the technologists is like, you're just such an important bridge between those worlds. Um, how do you think about the, the, role that America plays in this. Um, on one sense, we're completely just one player among other players in countries. But the fact that we we have the US dollar, which is the world's dominant currency today, um, so many countries look to America for uh, securities laws and, and rules and just general philosophies on things. I, I'm curious if you have any um, takes on that, on, on how, how you see that landscape in terms of like, yeah, <laughs> go for it yeah, no I, I get it um in regards to the u.s capital markets i think historically and through the present the u.s capital markets are arguably the most vibrant and uh reputable in a lot of capacities uh and we have systems in place to ensure investor protections fair and orderly markets you know uh segregation of customers' funds and securities from that of the institutions under the customer protection rule. We have a lot of systems in place. Uh, I think all those systems make sense for what's going on with the integration of distributed ledger technology here into the capital markets. I think that people are aware, uh, particularly at the government level now and the higher government level, that it's almost a matter of national security. Uh, It's very important that that the United States allows their markets to be upgraded. And I think they are. I don't I, like initially, like people make the argument, Oh, you know, regulation destroys innovation and how are we going to do things? I think it just shakes out the tree a little bit. And and the people who are going to continue focusing are going to continue focusing on it. And uh, it's almost an easy out there. But I think that the United States, you can argue fell behind when it came to a, uh, you know, a, uh, a government-based digital currency to the Chinese yuan, and we'll see how that plays out. But the U.S. will have it on its own in a year or two. Uh, and also, uh, uh, the again, it's a matter of national security, but I think that the best way to reference this is, uh, I think there's a quote from Winston Churchill who says, uh, America will make the right choice after choosing all the wrong choices. <laughs> and there was something I'm paraphrasing here, but we'll yeah, be okay. Yeah. I'm, I, I think that people understand it now. They understand the benefits from the regulatory side. Uh, regulators understand this stuff. They really do. Now, you could always see something new come about. You could see DeFi come about, which I don't necessarily think a lot of the industry understands, and I don't think that regulators have their full hands around yet, but they're definitely focusing on it. And they have smart people there, and uh, they will understand it. It's just that simple. So, I think that uh, we're at the point where uh, the government in America will make the right choice. 
and and it, it, if it doesn't, it'll just lose out its spot as the leading capital market in the world over time, or maybe parts will migrate away. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I don't think anyone's going to let that happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The nice the, thing about making the wrong choice is that when you when you leave the wrong choice in place long enough, it becomes so obvious. And uh, and then the nice thing about America is like we're kind of just a you know the government reflects what we the people ultimately believe whether whether politicians pick that up uh directly from contacting them or through twitter or through whatever but it, it, when when we make the wrong decision it becomes obvious and then we we kind of change um like something in california doesn't seem like it's operating ideally and people seem to leave and then i think people pick up on that people are leaving and then things change um so we got to remix it a little bit uh what what uh what do you think is your challenge, your biggest challenge at this point? You guys have the the product up. Like, give me a give me a quick recap as to where you guys are in terms of people working on the project, how much money you guys have raised, what you're currently focused on, and yeah, let's start there. Yeah, so uh, we've raised twenty seven plus to date, twenty seven million plus. Uh, our initial investor was a company called uh, Wang Shang slash Ashkey out of Shanghai. Um, they're one of the largest private companies in China, and I believe they uh, are one of the largest blockchain companies in China. If you, they run Shanghai Blockchain Week, uh, they're sophisticated the organi- as an organization, uh, and they were one of the first people to understand what we were trying to go for and actually having the whole process be on chain and were willing to take a shot on us, which we appreciate. From there, we raised another 15-plus uh, internationally, mainly from Japan, for Japanese investors. And then uh, right now, we are in the process of a uh, Reg A Plus offering that's not yet qualified, but we anticipate will be qualified shortly for uh, the raise. The raise is a range, but somewhere between 35 to $45 million. Um, but that's good. That's a firm commitment offering. It's a, you know, a, and hopefully we'll be listed on NASDAQ after that. Uh, what's going on from us from a regulatory perspective is we anticipate and hope to be one of the first, if not, uh, you know, one of the first, if not the first uh, public market ATS approved in the United States. So we're waiting for our ATS approval. And the SEC came out with a three-step process for a relationship between an ATS and a custodian and laying that stuff out. Ah, it's either September or December last year. And we've implemented everything in that capacity and are really hoping to be qualified sometime in uh, Q2, uh, which will be a big deal because it'll be that transition. I think the U.S., we've had private share markets, but private share markets are limited to accredited investors and institutions. There needs to be a public market here, and we hope to be the first one. Uh, The other thing is, I want to go back to something you said before about this, uh, you know, this potential clash with like traditional institutions. Uh, I don't see this as there's one cake here and whoever eats a piece is taking away a piece from someone else. I see this as the collaboration there allows the pie to grow and allows everyone to eat. Uh, Mm. I think you could relate it back to, I mean, uh, I don't know if you're a fan of comedy, but historically comedy like in the 70s and 80s was, oh, I'm going to get this spot on Letterman so you can't get it because there's a limited amount of people and a limited amount of TV spots. But as the internet came about, we have podcasts and everything else, comedians banded together such that they would go on each other's podcast and lever up each other's support and get each other more followers. And I see it and became collaborative in supporting each other. And I see that's how that, that'll 
work for in general in the industry. I don't think it can work a different way. I, I, I understand, you know, you might have what was historically called the crypto anarchist view of, you know, we're just going to burn it down and build a new one. But I don't think that's how this is going to go. I think no, it's more about no. integrating, integrating with the existing financial system, being a bridge and supporting traditional institutions who want to get into the space. Yeah, no, I agree with everything you said. It seems like you, you you need both sides, right? You need like the the progressives and the conservatives, people that hold down the fort and they maintain the structure of things. And then you need the people who are kind of pushing the boundaries. And frankly, you need the people like you who are the bridge between both those worlds. Like I almost feel when I tune into different media streams, whether it's like, you know, what major brokerages or just traditional finance news versus the crypto world, they there's some overlap, but mostly it's people in the traditional world trying to understand what Bitcoin is. And then on the, on the, on the other side, it's like, you know, like just way over my head at this point, just the things that people are building and working on. You, you can't, I don't think any person can understand at this point, everything that's going on. It just seems like you have to subspecialize even now with like NFTs or even what layer of the stack that you're focused on and building. And most people in crypto, I find, they're building. So they're they're working on their own project, their own company. Even from my vantage point, like I'm I'm pretty high up at this point in terms of uh, you know, I'm talking to you and then I'll talk to somebody else that's working at a traditional finance company and I'll talk to a guy who's starting a cloud-based bank and then it, it so it's all over the place and uh, and it just I get a high-level perspective on things, but when you're working in your company, you're like you know, your head's down building and you just you don't have time to stay up on what everyone's working on and what NFTs are and Crypto kitties and everything else. Um, I, I want to ask you about that, not crypto kitties specifically, but NFTs. Have you dove into these much? This has become wildly popular as of, you know, we're mid March now, and last few weeks have been just like NFT nonstop. What was the bid today? Was it 68, $69 million for the uh, <laughs> NFT that sold today at Christie's? Now, I'm, <sighs> uh, listen, the NFT. <sighs> The NFT universe makes sense. Uh, we're migrating to more of a digital space, and you need to have this idea of a collectible uh, capacity or you know function with digital objects. It, it, it's a good use case. It's a good use case for distributed ledger technology, and and there'll be a lot of cool things that come from that. Um, it, and I think that's good. I I also think that uh, what we tend to see a little bit in the space over and over is these like mini bubbles but they're not real yeah. bubbles because it's not like the bubble pops so that everyone leaves that's not really what happened it's just like a growing process and while the you know the price paid for the piece of the nft today uh might seem egregious to people i get it it does seem egregious uh but it's just the growth and the acceptance of these new products at a place and i think what you saw the other day with uh, what was it jack dorsey's first tweet going for 2.5 million dollars as an NFT, uh, the these interesting anomalies will work their way through, and you'll be left with a legitimate marketplace and a legitimate use case for the products. I think. Yeah, yeah, it almost seems so predictable. It's like it almost reflects human nature. One one good example of this is uh, Dogecoin uh, and Elon Musk pushing Dogecoin because if you look at the, I was looking at like. Dogecoin is an interesting crypto to me because it's kind of created as a joke and it's almost like, you know, it was almost created because everything else was so, um, 
you know, it's the only, it's, it's the only one that's really as a meme almost. And, and, and that one in particular, it just, it seems to shoot up it like, it'll like rocket up and then it'll kind of trickle down, trickle down, trickle down until something happens. And then it rockets up again and then trickles down. But every time it, it trickles down, it doesn't trickle down to the original, you know, base level. It trickles down like a third of where it originally was. And, um, yeah, it's like, it seems to be the case, even from a macro standpoint of like, you know, the whole market of crypto where it shot up in 20, what, 2018 and ever, you know, Paris Hilton was buying Bitcoin and then it quiets down and people forget about it. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it seems to be, I guess, the way we think about things where it's just extremely topical and then we kind of slowly forget and move on. When it comes to some of these tokens that have prices in the sense I think people should relate back to penny stocks and some of the interesting things people do, interesting, potentially malicious things people do when it comes to penny stocks and illiquid stocks. Uh, I think that you might see those jump ups and fall downs uh, that might be indicative of some sort of, you know, uh, what do I want to say here? Some sort of what would historically be called a pump and dump. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think it's sort of interesting to see the SEC potentially saying they're going to look at what uh, Elon Musk has been doing with Dogecoin because uh, that's interesting in a lot of different ways. One is uh, Doge is a security. I don't think Doge is security, but they do have the authority to go after him, I think. So uh, the potential implications there uh, are interesting because they're is uh, a certain degree of funny business that might go on in certain parts of the crypto world. And, you know, if news comes out about an illiquid, very low-priced crypto, uh, and all of a sudden you have a bunch of people buying, uh, generally the people who are dumping into that are part of the whole pump component. Yeah, yeah. And why does that feel, why is that wrong? It's wrong because there's not, there's, there's, there's a, you go into this uh, this practice or this um, situation if you're a pump and diaper with the understanding that you're just trying to screw, you're trying to deceive other people. You're trying to make it look like something that it's not. We're going to pump up the stock all together, and then it looks like something's really happening. We attract people, and then we all run out the building and sell it. And and like it's a it's a trick, right? And mm-hmm. we don't like tricks, and that's especially in finance. When it's small groups of people get together, it's not and a trick. trick. Is would you call pump it's and dump market manipulation? Though? It's market manipulation. It's a deceptive trading practice. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> if it's if it involves yeah, yeah, securities, yeah. like it's like uh, again, there's nothing new under the sun. And look what the, has happened in the history of penny stocks uh, and illiquid yeah. shares. And I think that, uh, it, and who knows what the regulators are thinking, but they're probably. Uh, having some sort of deja vu there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, what's? Tell me more about you for a minute. Um, you, you're in New York. You, you wanted to be a lawyer when you were a kid. You got your law degree. You know, tell me the story. How you kind of got into this a little bit earlier than that? Did you ha- always have an interest in technology, or was law your? your I always path? like. Uh, uh, I am an attorney by trade and I did work in financial services, but I was always more interested in creating our own products, uh, creating our own systems. Uh, 
at first that was very difficult because when you don't come from a uh, technological or an engineering background, uh, certain things seem like they're these giant tasks or giant achievements, but they're just normal for an engineer. So, <laughs> so uh, you learn sometimes the hard way and, uh, you know, uh, you learn more from failure than from success. And uh, I had always been in, when I was young, I was into the stock market and uh, different markets, concepts and trading concepts and entrepreneurial type stuff. And uh, I went to law school because uh, I always knew I was going to be a securities attorney. My, uh, it's what my family does. It's uh, my, fa- my family's law firm. Uh, we were actually incubated out of the law firm. And one of the things you need to understand is that what's the biggest cost of starting our business? Now, there's certain like flesh costs, uh, there's certain costs of, you know, ongoing costs, but the biggest cost is, is legal. You know, the five to $10 million in like, like legal costs that you're just going to like go into the project, that's just going to be a cost there. And I think that sort of makes it unattractive to a lot of people who didn't have that resource and that, you know, was, weren't in that position. So that's why when uh, the Dow report came out, I realized we had that resource and it would be hard for other people to do that. Uh, That's why we started it. And um, it's been very helpful to have the support of a established uh, securities law firm. Uh, Obviously, sometimes you see people doing corporate law and they say it's securities law, but securities law is dealing with FINRA, dealing with the SEC, creating broker dealers, clearing firms, the the issues there and how they interact with ATSs and we had real molecular expertise there, I would say. So it was really mm-hmm. uh, almost a natural uh, coming together of all these different factors that uh, allowed us to create the company and to basically, mm-hmm. hopefully, uh, achieve great success. That's cool, man. And do you do comedy on the side? No, no. no the way you said it <laughs> earlier. <laughs> no, <laughs> Maybe, no. thank you, Mike. <laughs> you seem like no, a funny guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. No, no, I don't do comedy. I think that uh, people who speak publicly, as I have to do sometimes for work, it's like you can learn a lot for, from comedy because mm. uh, instead of seeing it as you delivering a message, I think it's important that you sort of have fun with it and feel comfortable up there and not be too serious. I mean, obviously, you're, what we do is, is very serious and highly regulated and very complicated. but. Uh, the and also relating back to what you said before is most people think it involves bitcoin like i've said i've sent the ethereum homestead doc to 50 people now if they read it or not you know that's up to them but like uh that gives you the basis to really understand what's going on here so uh by sort of having a bit of a levity associated with it i think you're able to uh sort of enjoy it a bit more and uh yeah and you know make it through in some capacity yeah yeah, I agree. I agree. We have a tendency to get a little too, yeah, dry and ultra serious. You can take it sincerely without taking it seriously. Or yeah, there's a yeah. Uh, there's a Japanese saying from a book called the Hagakure, I believe, and it's like all about the uh, the retainer master relationship or the retainer lord relationship. And one of the sayings they say is, "Think about things very hard, so you could take them very lightly." Mm. Oh, I like that. I know. I like that. Reminds me of another good one I like, which is uh, uh, easy decisions, hard life, hard decisions, easy life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's, uh, it's uh, one of the things that's nice and I really appreciate it from this is I, I, I enjoy the international component. 
I think uh, there is this event that really hasn't occurred yet, which is a really a true internationalized market that the markets speak to each other. And you can, mm. you might have certain parts of the world where certain markets speak to each other, but I think you could do it a lot better using uh, distributed ledger technology and connecting different markets on chain, you know, whether it's uh, through different models there. And I think that, you know, this might be five, 10 years out, but there's real interest and it's really cool to be able to do something like that. Like, yeah, I think what's really dry driven our team is that, uh, it's not just that like we like our jobs. It's that we really feel like we could make a change to markets and yeah. to feel like you could impact something that you've learned about your whole life is, is really uh, fulfilling. When do you think we'll get to the point where there's a, a globally, relatively globally accessible blockchain based uh, uh, securities market where I could just, you know, take my company and go public and anyone can invest anywhere in the world with any amount of money they want. <laughs> Before Libra gets launched. I'm joking. I think what you have to do is the reason I bring up Libra is because you have to follow uh, sort of the model that that they might have been trying to follow that you have to get regulated in each different jurisdiction and then tie them together after the fact. You're never going to be able to. So basically, if you want to enter Japan, you have to work with the regulators there and have some sort of system there that they approve and then tie it into your larger system to do an offering. Uh, at, in USD in America and in yen in Japan at the same time is really interesting. It's a it's a step forward from where I'd say the markets are today. Now I don't know how quickly that could happen, but uh, I think having that as a goal of building these markets is uh, is really a positive thing. Mm. Yeah, totally, man. Um, so for people listening, what, what what would you be looking for, whether it's uh, engineers or other folks to join your team or investors or partners or what kind of people would help you that you're looking for? In the blockchain space, it's hard to find engineers because there's major demand. Um, you have certain universities that uh, have programs dedicated to blockchain, you know, but in within their computer science program. And uh, I think that's a good source. But for blockchain engineers, particularly particularly who have payments experience, for us, that would be that's really interesting. There, uh, obviously, uh, we have, and this is sort of an interesting quirk. But we've always been sub- substance over form. So it's we don't do a bunch of marketing. It's like you said, you got to put your head down and build, man. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot to build, and we've built it over the course of years. But um, the so a lot of the times by focusing on marketing, you sort of detract from your core business. And uh, from that, I think what we'd be looking for is uh, potentially institutional partners, uh, particularly as we get approved and we have more. Uh, and basically that should happen shortly. Uh, having institutional partners who want to tie into the system, who basically uh, will be able to uh, Open doors that next level on the uh, on the you know on the on the next dungeon boss or however it mm. is in the video game. That's always helpful there. So, but mm. we're in a. I'm really I'm really proud if I could even say that of our team and like we've kept it small. We we keep it agile and uh, we're in a good position. That I think that uh, in the next coming months, hopefully you'll hear a lot from us. Mm. And la- last question for you: How'd you come up with the name Prometheum? Uh, good question. So. <laughs> Prometheus is obviously 
the god uh, that gave man fi- fire and then get, you know gets a uh, Zeus has the eagle eat out his liver every day and yeah. and but basically uh, it, it, the idea was is that Prometheus gave God fire we wanted to give people the, the compliant digital assets and uh, basically a the idea of Promethean as like the word itself is really interesting because it's uh, being rebelliously creative or innovative. And that's not mm. Prometheum, but it's Promethean. And uh, mm. so actually the other day I just sent, <laughs> I sent uh, the other founders of the company uh, each a uh, Prometheum or a Prometheum succulent, you know, like <laughs> little cactus things. That's just <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> yeah, so <I> was, <laughs> but it, that was that was interesting to even find out it existed. So, uh, yeah, that's so that's cool. where it came from. That's a, some good opportunity there for some uh, some cool merch, like a t shirt with some fire breathing dragon on there, or with a succulent on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with the succulent, even better. Kind of reminds me, Kraken has a similar. Uh, I listened to an interview with the founder of Kraken, and he's like, you know, it was in my college dorm room. I was coming up with cool names, and it kind of sounded like a like a dragon name. So I bought the domain, and we just ran with it. I was like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. I think people focus really hard on like the perfect name or the perfect logo, but that's window dressing. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 You run with it and make it what you have. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Cool, Aaron. Well, I really enjoyed getting to know you and learning more about Prometheum and everything you've got going on. So wish you the best of luck with everything and hope to have you back here when, uh, you know, things are uh, 10 times bigger and you guys are changing the world. So keep it up, man. Thank you so much, Mike. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.